My name is John, and I'm the community life pastor here at North Langley. And if I seem unfamiliar to you, it's because I'm not normally here. Uh, I work with our life groups across the campuses, but Sunday mornings you'll find me at our Alder Grove campus. And so this morning is a unique opportunity. 51 Sundays of the year, North Langley is one church in three locations: Yorkson, Alder Grove, and Walnut Grove. But this Sunday we are all here together. So I'm just curious, who do we have here from Yorkson? All right. <laughs> who is from Alder Grove? All right. And Walnut Grove. Got the home field advantage. <laughs> Now we're going to do something.、Uh, it's an activity here to kind of start the sermon off.、Uh, maybe this is new to you, and maybe it's not new to you. But it's an activity I like to call talking to someone. <laughs> and you're like, I don't like it already. <laughs> but in a moment, I'm going to give you a discussion question. And if you're like, I don't want to do this, that's fine. You can just sit and reflect quietly. That's totally okay.、Uh, but you can talk to someone you came with. Someone you're sitting beside, maybe even someone you don't know, and I'm going to give you about 90 seconds to ask the question: Have you ever felt uncomfortable in a church service? <laughs> you're like, yes, right now. <laughs> so you can talk about this church, another church. Just unpack it for a little bit. Talk to someone. Have you ever felt uncomfortable in a church service? 90 seconds, and go. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. I'm going to call you back. Now it sounded like there was a lot of talking going on, so I would love to hear all these stories, but we just don't have time. But just show of hands, who has never, in any service, ever felt uncomfortable in a church service? Is there anyone? One. Let's bring you up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, but everyone else has felt uncomfortable at some point or another in a church service.、Um, I like to go to different churches on vacation, and so you show up in a church you've never been to, and you might walk in the door and find you are massively overdressed. Or as is the case when we go camping on vacation, you show up and you are underdressed. Or you might not know when to stand and when to sit. You might not know what to say and when. All of a sudden, someone says something, everyone's saying something, and you're like, "I didn't know we were doing that." Or you might even feel put on the spot. I was at one church recently, and they actually had all of the newcomers stand up and introduce themselves to everybody. <laughs> Now, I work in a church. I've been to thousands of services. I did not like that. <laughs> But a lot of those things we can push through. You get used to what to wear. You get used to the order of service. You know when to stand. You know when to sit. All of that stuff we can figure out. We can get used to it. But have you ever felt? Oh, just one other thing. We have kids in the service. Kids, it's great to have you here. And so, if you are with kids and you're like, "Oh, my kids are going to be noisy," that's fine. Relax. If you're, if adults. <laughs>、um, if you're sitting next to someone who is a kid and they're a little noisy. Relax, families. Thank you for bringing your kids. So just relax. It's great to have you here. But we can get used to all of these things—dress code and when to stand and where to sit, what to say—all of that stuff. But have you ever felt uncomfortable for a different reason, a deeper reason? 
But maybe it starts before you've even left. You sit at home, and, and it starts to kind of reveal itself to you. And you get in the car, and you drive here, and, and as you park in the parking lot, it's this growing realization. And as you walk towards the door, you think about this whole Bible and God and church thing, and then you think about your life, and you're like, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe it was a bad weekend or a bad week, or maybe it's been long enough that it's your whole life, and you and you just think, I don't think I should be here, and you feel like your deepest secret is written on your forehead, and everyone is just moments away from figuring it out, and so you're here, but barely. And if you've ever felt like that, or if you feel like that this morning, I have good news for you. Jesus told a story about a person who felt exactly like that in a church service. Two people, actually. One who felt extremely uncomfortable, and one who was confident, comfortable, and overwhelmingly happy to be there. So we're going to take a look at the story that Jesus told, and we're going to see how through this story we can actually move from being one kind of person to the other. So last week was Christmas, and we finished up our Advent series, and now we're diving back into the Gospel of Luke, and we've been in Luke for years. Uh, but good news, uh, we are finishing the Gospel of Luke by Easter. Uh, between now and Easter, we're going to be wrapping up our series. It's going to be a little bit out of order, but today we're back in Luke. So before we uh, take a look at God's Word, would you join me in prayer? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask you would meet us here today with who we are and not who we pretend to be that you would open our ears and help us to hear what you're saying, that you would soften our hearts, that we would respond, and you would transform us to be people that look more like you than we do right now. We pray this in your name. Amen. So you can turn to Luke 18 in your Bible or your Bible app if you would like. Uh, we're going to read it in a moment, but before we do, a little bit of context. This story is about two people at the temple. One is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And going into the story, we might not know this, but naturally, the Pharisee is the hero. And the temple, if you're not familiar, is the building in Jerusalem where God's presence was. And the Pharisee is the hero. And we don't have Pharisees today. We don't call them that, at least. But we definitely still have people who are like this. Pharisees taught people how to live as the people of God. Do this, don't do that. They would be the people whose spiritual opinion we respect. They preach the sermons we listen to, they write the books we read, they record the podcasts we follow. They could be elders or pastors or prayer team members or top-notch volunteers, but they're the people we hold in high esteem in our church. Spend time in this church or any church, and you will find people like that. So when we read this story, don't imagine a Pharisee. Imagine someone whose spiritual opinion you respect. So that's one. And on the other hand, we have a tax collector. And going into the story, the tax collector is the villain. A tax collector in Jesus' day, he was a, a local person who made a contract with the Roman government to collect taxes. So he was given a quota. You have to collect this much in taxes, and they could choose how much and from whom. So you owe me this much, you owe me that much, you owe me this much, you owe me that much. And the soldiers would enforce their decision. And so they 
had a lot of power. They could get rich, but they were universally despised because they got rich on the backs of people in their neighborhood. So we've got a, a tax collector and a Pharisee, and we don't have tax collectors these days. Our tax system is a little bit different. And so who is our modern tax collector? Well, I met someone a few years ago, and I said, hey, what do you do for a living? And they said, don't tell anyone, but I work for the CRA. So maybe our modern tax collector is an ancient tax collector. It's still not a popular job. But the church I grew up in had an older fellow who grew up in Germany in World War II. And he was part of the Hitler Jugend, which is kind of like the Nazi Boy Scouts. Maybe he would be like a tax collector. As Canadians, we're working through our history with residential schools. So maybe a tax collector is someone who managed a residential school. Maybe these resonate with you, maybe something else, but when we read the story, don't think ancient tax collector. Think someone that you don't like. Think someone that nobody likes, that if they sat down beside you and you knew who they were, you wouldn't talk to them, and you certainly wouldn't invite them for lunch or for coffee. So, someone whose opinion we respect, and the bad guy. Now, before we read here, uh, one thing we do in this church is after we read the main Bible verse for the week, the person up here says, this is the word of the Lord, and your response is, thanks be to God. So Luke 18, verse 10, says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the word of the Lord. It's a lovely story, isn't it? The spiritual person, the one we respect, they come to church and he stands confident and comfortable. And the nasty old tax collector, he's ashamed, embarrassed at the back, and he begs for mercy. It feels good when the good people of the world feel good about being good, doesn't it? And it feels good when the bad people of the world feel bad about being bad. There's a rightness and a justness to this story. Sometimes how I like my church service. I want to feel good about being good. I want the bad people to feel bad about being bad. In fact, maybe it kind of feels like we're good to go. Wrap the sermon up and go home. But as comfortable as we might be with the story, it's not the whole story. Every time we read a story from Jesus, we should look for two things. Number one, who is he talking to? And number two, what's he talking about? It's called the context. And right now, we don't have either of these things. But if we back up a little bit to verse 9, it says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Well, there it is. That's who Jesus was talking to. And it's not always this clear in the Bible, but it's delightful that it is. It means that we know who Jesus is talking to today. It's to those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. That's our who. But how does it end? What is Jesus talking about? Well, verse 14, it says this. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Wow. Jesus just took this whole thing and turned it upside down. So you're telling me, Jesus, that the tax collector is the good guy in the story and not the spiritual person? I mean, it actually looks like Jesus is saying that church is not designed to be a place where good people go to feel good about being good and bad people go to feel bad about being bad. But Jesus, it seems he's saying that when we come into God's presence, that sinners find mercy. See, Jesus' message here is completely different from what we would expect. The Pharisee, or any of us really, who build ourselves up to this level where we, we exalt ourselves, it means to lift ourselves up, where we bring ourselves up so high that we come into God's presence, Jesus says we actually leave unchanged. We stay the same, and the only end there is a humbling or a bringing down. But the person who comes in openly expressing their need for God and their sin and their shortcomings and their brokenness, well, God meets that person in their need, and he justifies them, which is just a word that means that God sees you as righteous and tells others the same. See, when we first read the story, we might think it's a story about how to go from being a tax collector to a Pharisee, but it actually is moving us in the other direction. Jesus is pointing us more towards the tax collector and away from being pretentious and self-righteous. Now, why would we do this? Why is this an appealing offer? Why would I give up the comfort and the confidence that I have when I walked into this room. I'll be honest with you, I'm a pretty good person. I could stand here fairly confident in what I've done. Why would I want to give that up? What is it that, about what Jesus is saying that would convince me to consider going the other direction? It's a good question. Does anyone here ever go across the border for gas? We used to go a fair amount, uh, less so now, but we still go. But when it's time soon to go to the States for gas, what do you do? Well, for us, we have a couple of jerry cans. So I would make sure first that we've emptied our jerry cans. Secondly, I would make sure that our vehicle is as close to empty as you can get it without running out of gas at the border. And so you don't want to quite coast to the gas station on fumes but almost. And then I get to the gas station, I fill up the jerry cans, I fill up the vehicle, and I'll be honest, I'm the person who sits at the pump, and before I've pulled away, I take out my phone, and I convert gallons to liters, American dollars to Canadian dollars, so I know exactly how much I saved. Now, how many people think that's ridiculous? A couple people. But even if you think it's ridiculous, and even if you don't do it, do you know why I do? And we're not talking about cars, are we? See, there's good news this morning, North Langley, and the good news is this. That God is willing to pardon the guilty. That God will justify the sinner. That God, out of his abundance, can fill the empty. That God forgives sin, even sinny sin, like the really bad stuff. God heals the broken. He gives hope to the hopeless. God comforts 
comforts those who mourn. But here's the catch. Here's the reason, here's the motivation to abandon the self-righteousness of a Pharisee and pursue the humility of the tax collector. Here's why we would consider this. That like a car, God fills the empty. But like a car, it is the empty who are filled. That God pardons the guilty, but it is the guilty who are pardoned. That God forgives sin, but only sin is forgiven. That God heals the broken, but only the broken are healed. See, we come to God at a time like this and we, we want to experience the filling and the fullness and the comfort and the healing and the pardon. We want to be released from the weight of our sin and experience the joy and the life and the hope and the comfort and the freedom that Christ gives. But who wants to come empty and sinful and broken and hopeless and mourning? Nobody. And so I think that's why many of us, or I know for me, I've experienced staleness in my walk because I show up to God and I say, I'm good. I cover over my sin with my best intentions. I take something good over here to uh, cover over something bad over there. And I stand before God and I say, I have no need. And I walk away unfilled and unchanged, and I wonder why my spiritual life is dead. See, I want forgiveness, but I don't want to admit I've done anything wrong. I want to be pardoned, but I don't want to admit I'm guilty. And I want to be justified, but I do not want to come and say that I'm a sinner. The good news, church, is that God fills the empty but it is the empty who are filled. I've spoken with many people who feel like they need to clean up their act before they come to God. Have you ever felt like that? I struggled with it time and time again, that you have to feel like you're good enough before you can come and encounter God. And I think it's rooted in how we imagine God. I used to teach English in middle school in Korea. And at every middle school I taught in, the, the school was surrounded by a wall, and the wall had a gate, and every morning a teacher would stand at the gate and conduct inspection. All of the students had a uniform, and the uniform had to be just so. And there were certain hairstyles, and it was only certain hairstyles that were okay, and only certain hair lengths. And the teacher would stand there and inspect, and any student that failed inspection had to fix it or face punishment. And that's how we imagine God sometimes. We pull up in our car, we open our Bible, and we come into God's presence, and we imagine God sifting through our lives and saying, okay, I see, I see Thursday morning, I see that thought running in your head, and until you deal with this, I'm sorry, I'm not letting you in. Deal with it first, and then we can talk. But church, I would invite us to have a radically different picture of God. Instead of a school dress code inspector, I would encourage us maybe to think about someone who has prepared a feast and extended an invitation. How do you show up to a meal, like a good meal that you've been invited to? If you walked in the door to a good meal and they're like, hey, welcome here, and you're like, stopped at McDonald's on the way, I'm good. Well, that's an insult to the host. 
But if you step in the door when you've been invited to a feast and they say, welcome here, how are you? And you say, I'm starving. I haven't eaten since yesterday. <laughs> to show up hungry to a meal is to show up perfectly. To show up hungry to a meal is to express faith and a desire to participate. What it says is, I am confident that the hunger that goes so deep in me will meet its match in what you've prepared. And that is grace, church, that is grace. Could you imagine coming to God with that same attitude where God says, how are you? And you say, I am deeply, deeply broken and I have desperate, desperate need. And God says, good, because what I have prepared for you is more than sufficient for what you need. Come to the table and feast, feast, feast. See, I think that is the picture of God that we should have. Not of digging through our lives, but of welcoming the broken, of bringing in those who need healing, of filling the empty. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Isaiah 55. And it says this, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. See, the kingdom of God is all upside down. The Pharisees are phony and the tax collector is justified. The hungry get fed and the full go away disappointed. It's a meal, but only those who can't pay get in. See, I want in. I want to be at that meal. I want to eat of that grace. But like the Pharisee, I keep returning to a confidence in my own righteousness. And confidence is this idea that something is good enough that you're comfortable relying on it. If you're a confident mechanic, you'll do your own brakes. If you're a competent mechanic, it will be a good idea. If you're a confident baker, you'll prepare something to bring and serve to extended family or friends. If not, you'll pick up something on the way. And if I'm confident in my own righteousness, I will say, I've done this and this and this, and I will come into God's presence and say, I'm good. I rely on what I've done what the Pharisee did. That's what I do. See, sometimes I would rather feed myself with the little righteous scraps I have at home than to come to the meal and trust that what God has is enough for me. See, the Pharisee, he pointed to the things he did do and didn't do. The things he gave and the things he gave up. He says, God, I gave my money and I gave up my food. And I see myself doing this. I rate my righteousness by what I've done and what I've not done. You know, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do the other, and therefore I'm a good Christian. As a church, we have this list of rules. It's not written and it's not posted and it changes every few years. But good Christians don't do this, this, and this. And if you don't do this, you're a good Christian. And so we come to God and we're like, I've met the list. Or we look at the things we do. God, I volunteer at my kid's school. I'm involved in different areas at church. I round up my purchase at McDonald's. 
I donate my old things at the thrift store, and I'm here rather than sleeping in. That's got to count for something. But I find for me to be transparent, the moments where I really, really lean on my own righteousness are the times where I have worked hard and I feel like nobody sees it. And it's the times where I've put that in where I can sigh and recognize that it is my deep and unseen suffering that truly makes me a saint. What about you? Is your righteousness confidence-inspiring? Are you okay to rely on it? If you were going to convince yourself, others, or God that you're a good person, what would you point to? See, Jesus summarized that kind of righteousness as exalting yourself, lifting yourself up. It's kind of like you go home and you know those Olympic podiums, the first place, second place, third place things? It's like going to your living room, setting up one of those, and then stepping on the first place and going, ah, I did it. Jesus is like, it doesn't actually count. Now that you've gone further up, you actually have further down to come. See, it's not just when we're confident in ourselves either. It's when we look down on others. We can lift ourselves up or put each other down. So what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to continue the conversation we had earlier. Uh, The person you were talking with um, at the beginning of the service, Uh, We've got a second discussion question. So whether it's someone you came with or someone you uh, are sitting beside, the second discussion question is this. Who do I think I'm better than? (laughs) It doesn't have to be everyone, but just who quickly comes to mind? I'll give you a minute and go. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) We're not going to do that. Some of you are like, I have a list. (laughs) It's been updated. (laughs) But we're not going to do that. That would be ridiculous. Of course we don't think we're better than other people. Like everybody else, I'm a pretty normal person. I'm fairly down to earth. I'd like to think I'm fairly approachable. I would actually say that one of my best traits is my humility. But I think we've all encountered people who would say that they are better than someone else. They're pretentious. They're self-righteous. They're judgmental. They're, oh, okay. (laughs) Apparently, I think I'm better than people who think they're better than someone else. So now that we've broken the ice, I won't ask you to share it, but I suspect that there might be someone you think you're better than. I do. My politics are varied enough that in some ways I I feel like I'm better than the liberals. (laughs) And in others, I'm better than the conservatives. Often I think I'm better than Americans. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying I've thought it. Have you? Sometimes it's the people who have more money than me because they're materialistic. The people who have less money than me because they're bad at saving. The people who drive faster than me because they're maniacs. The people who drive slower than me because they don't know where they're going. (laughs) But people who have different views on theology, on vaccines, on hockey teams. See, when I do this, I draw the line, just like the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm like me. 
and not like them. And what are the two kinds of people the Pharisee has? He says, thank you that I'm like me and not, if you're not like him, what are you? You're an evildoer, an adulterer, a robber, or that jerk over there. And his prayer, he says, I thank you like I'm not like that guy. Now, I don't know if Jesus is joking in this, but could you imagine praying that prayer? I think we do. That the good people are the people like me who think the right things, support the right causes in the right way and to the right degree, and not like all the other evildoers out there. There's the me and the good people and the bad people, which is everyone else. I think sometimes we do this as a church. We say the people here, thank you, God, that we are like us and not like them. Thank you that you have blessed us and that we aren't like those people. And so who is the person that if they walked through that door right now and sat by you, you might not say it, but you would think it, thank you, God, that I am not like them. See, righteousness by comparison it is so warped and so tempting, and I think we do it all the time. Because we don't have to be good if we can find someone bad. I don't have to get better if I see someone worse. That I am good because I'm not like them. But it's not enough. Jesus says, if you lift yourself up or put each other down, that's not enough, that the further you lift yourself up, the further you have to fall. Instead, we are invited to come to God and reveal our need and in that need to encounter the riches and the depths of God's grace. I think the villain of this story is the Pharisee, if we need a villain. But I don't think the hero is the tax collector. See, the tax collector, he walks in and he says, God, I am a sinner. I have done wrong. Would you give me mercy? There's no hero in that. I think the hero in this, story, in this story is the mercy of God that sees the sinners and welcomes them to the table. See, God's grace is that a sinner in their need is met and is called justified. Tim mentioned it in his prayer, but Jesus in Matthew 5 talks about the Beatitudes. And Jesus just kind of lists a bunch of people that are blessed. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, for blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for those who are persecuted, when you're insulted, when people make up all kinds of stuff about you. Blessed are you. That doesn't sound like a blessing. That sounds awful. But Jesus says that in that is blessing because it is the poor who will receive the kingdom of heaven. It is the mourning who will be comforted, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. See, the good news this morning, church, is that God meets us in our need, but it is in our need that he meets us. See, we want the pardon, but not the guilt. We want forgiveness, but not to acknowledge our sin. 
And God invites us and he welcomes us, but still we hesitate. And I think for me, and maybe it's the same for you, I think the reason I hesitate is I feel like if I'm honest with God, if I'm truly honest about the things going on in my heart, that there's no way he could ever love me, that there's no way that he could ever accept someone like me, that if you knew me, there's no way you could love me. But I want to give us one final picture here. In Luke 18, 15, just the next verse here, it says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So I want to say again, family with kids, thank you for bringing kids. Because Jesus says, in this crowd, not hypothetical, real, these people here, if you want to figure out how to get into the kingdom of heaven, there is something that kids know that we have to learn. At the 9 o'clock service this morning, we had a baby dedication, baby Joshua. And Joshua just sat there being held, and at points he wanted to touch the microphone, at points he wanted to go from mom to dad or dad to mom, or front, face front or face back, and he just kind of squirmed. And Joshua hasn't done a whole lot in his life, being a baby. Like him, his resume is fairly short. But in that moment, as he expressed his need, alongside the expression of that need was absolute, unshaking confidence that the one who holds him loves him, and those who love him will provide for him. And Jesus says, if you want to come into the kingdom, you have to figure this out. You've got to learn from kids how to receive the kingdom, and if you don't, you won't get in. And sometimes the, the you won't get in, we're like, okay, well, he doesn't mean like you won't, you won't. But if we're going to translate this into the elementary school version, what Jesus is saying is that unless you receive the kingdom of heaven like a little child, you will never, never, ever times infinity get in. The Greek is, it's an aorist subjunctive with a double negation. It's the strongest possible way to say that nothing, or this will never, ever happen. Jesus says, if you don't figure this out, you won't get in. Receive it like a child. So I'm going to invite the band up. And as they come, I just have a couple questions for us this morning. Number one, am I confident in my own righteousness? This is especially tricky for those of us who have been around the church for a while. We get really confident, really comfortable with all we've given and all we've given up. Over the years, the list grows longer and longer and longer, and I become more and more comfortable relying on that list. I look at it and I think, wow, maybe... Maybe I am the hero of my story. But if so, I would encourage us to, to re-examine the stories we're telling ourselves and invite God or a trusted friend to speak honestly into our lives. To look back over the years and maybe see, maybe, maybe I'm not the hero in all of this. Secondly, do I look down on others? Or do we as a church is the world divided into me and evildoers, or us and the wrong church? See, are we putting down the tax collector that Jesus has invited to eat? Righteousness, by comparison, is dangerous because it feels so good, and it is so, 
so common. And if this is you, I would encourage you to take some time for honest reflection. I find for me, when I'm feeling good by comparing, I'm often trying to cover up something in my own life. And so if your righteousness is righteousness by comparison, I would ask you, what are you covering? I would also encourage us, especially as we prepare to respond, not to look how other people are responding. In a moment, we will have people available at the front for prayer or in the prayer room at the back. And if you sit there and say, thank you, God, that I am not so needy like the people who go up for prayer. Or God, thank you that I'm not so hard-hearted like the people who don't go up for prayer. Or I'm not so emotional or unemotional, but whatever it is that we don't respond to God by comparison, like, okay, I'm responding better than that guy and that person over there. I'm doing good. Not like that. That we would come to God each on our own and to hear what he would have to say to us. And thirdly, on that note, are you a sinner in need of mercy and grace? If so, I have got news for you, that Jesus welcomes sinners to his table. So instead of imagining God standing at the door, looking through your life, trying to find every last thing, instead what I would encourage you to do is to imagine a table that is just groaning under the weight of the banquet that has been prepared. And when you look inside and you feel the ache and the weight of that emptiness, you feel the sin like a sliver in your soul, and you say, God, I need to be filled. God, I need mercy. God, I need grace. God says, come, come, come and feast. You are welcome at the table. And so we will have people willing to pray. If you would like to come, we would love to pray with you. If you want to sit and respond, sit and respond. But in your need, be open and honest and allow God to meet you there. He offers pardon for the guilty as long as that's your plea. And lastly, especially as we head into the new year, are you willing to receive the kingdom like a child? And maybe you could make it your resolution this year to go way more needy to God. Hey God, this year I'm showing up with way less and I'm eating way more. And God says, good, come. Would you join me in prayer? God, teach us. Teach us what it is that kids know about how to receive the kingdom that you offer. God, where we see ourselves as righteous, I pray that you would open our eyes. Where we want to talk about others, God, help us to hear what you want to say about ourselves. And in our mercy, or in our need for mercy, God, would you meet us? So God, we ask for grace. Give us the faith to dish up. Amen.